Well, let's uh, go into a time of study together then. Um, and I want to just uh, at the outset say I want to encourage you to read this psalm because it will bless you. Uh, it's a psalm that speaks of the word of God. It extols the word of God and it encourages us to love the word of God. So it's so important in that context. It's kind of the center of the Bible. Um, and it kind of links everything together. As you see, the more I've studied this, the more I've just been overwhelmed at the design uh, and the pattern and what God has given to us in this incredible psalm. So we'll go through and hopefully uh, you'll be blessed and encouraged as we do so. Um, Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 tells us that we are to walk in the spirit and not to gratify the desires of sinful nature. Now, it's a verse we know, but how do we do that? That's the big question. You know, it's the ideal of the Christian life. But really, how are we to walk in the spirit? What does it really mean? And how do we not gratify the desires of the sinful nature? Because those desires are very powerful, very strong things. You know, even just the desire to eat food. And I guess we probably most of us ate more at Christmas time than we needed to. But it's just an example of the desires of the flesh. So scripture says here, Paul tells us that we are to walk in the spirit instead. So there's, there's two ways of walking. There's God's way, there's man's way. But how do we do it? And it is, of course, is the goal of every believer. We want to do it. And Paul, of course, in Romans chapter 7, gives us that challenge uh, that, you know, he, he faced, that he wanted to do what was right. He knew the right thing and wanted to do it, but he found that his body, his flesh, was pulling him in the other direction. Well, that is the question we're going to try and address. And I believe this psalm is our an, a, a, a antidote to that problem. Now, you know, when we are faced with the world, the flesh, the devil, you know, what do we do in response? Well, let's just look at the first eight verses and then I'm going to just take it apart. We'll comment on a few things here, but we, we ought to just build on this. I'll show you some of the things that have really touched me. So it starts by a double blessing. Now, the double blessing typically from a Jewish perspective was reserved for the sons the firstborn son specifically. It was the blessing of the one who was to inherit. Okay, so we see the situation with Esau and with Jacob. Uh, and of course, Jacob strives to get that birthright. He wants the double blessing. And we see a number of examples in scripture like that. Um, so straight away, we see here a psalm that is really addressed to those who can inherit, who should inherit that double blessing, the sons of God. It speaks whether male, female, those who have been brought into that relationship of being counted as the firstborn son. That's what God has done. Of course, John chapter one, John chapter three tells us, you know, behold, what manner of love that God the Father has bestowed poured upon us that we should be called the sons of God. So he starts, blessed are the undefiled in the way uncontaminated by the things of this world and so on, who walk in the law of the Lord. So there's the contrast, not contaminated by this world, but instead have made that conscious choice to walk in the law of the Lord. But then the second blessing, blessed are they that keep his testimonies. So it's not just a walk, but it's a continual keeping of his testimonies and that seek him with a whole heart as a challenge. Now, straight away, we see a problem here. Because our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that they're corrupt, deceitful, uh, incurable, in fact. Now, it really speaks of the problem that we see in the Garden of Eden, that initially that walk with God was started, but sin comes in. And so we recognize that we can't do this. It's the goal, 
But how do we do it? Well, we can't naturally. And that's the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of the law is that it points us to Jesus Christ, to the one who can do this work in us. And it says they also, those who are blessed in the way and so on, walk in the way and seek him with the whole heart, they also do no iniquity. Now, you may think, well, it's impossible that everybody sins. Well, yeah, in, in the natural, that's true. But if you remember again in First John a number of times, John tells us that that which is born of God does not sin. Straight away, we're seeing a connection with what was revealed in the New Testament and what the psalmist here is saying to us. They also do no iniquity. The life that God works in us is not subject to the law of sin and death. Uh, they walk in his ways. And what joy comes from that? Uh, thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Notice God didn't suggest, God didn't put it forward as a, an idea that we might want to consider. It's a command. You know, we're familiar, of course, with the Ten Commandments. And it's been said many times, they're not the Ten Suggestions. Well, this also is a command. God has commanded us to keep his precepts diligently. And then we get to the, the bit where the psalmist kind of goes from the ideal, from the goal, to the reality. And he says, oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Like, if only that were how it were. If, Lord, if you could just force me and, 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 and so engineer my way that I have no choice but to keep your statutes. But that's not the reality because God does give us that choice. God wants us to choose him out of love, not to be forced to follow him out of some sort of compulsion. But then the psalmist says, you know, if that were the case, if I could be forced to, you know, that my ways were directed to keep his statutes, then I shall not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. You know, there's that longing that one day this will be the case. David said you know, that he longed to awake in the likeness of his God, of his saviour. I will praise thee with that brightness of heart. You see, we've gone from the goal to the problem, to the looking forward in hope to what will be. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments, not if, when. It's so important because we'll see that this psalm really gives us a journey. It starts with the, the statement here, this declaration in the first eight verses, and then goes on to build, to travel with us through life. It's not a psalm that you read once and that's it, you're done. It's a psalm that every day there's this constant growing and learning and moving forward in grace. And so again, I will praise thee with that brightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. And I will keep thy statutes. And then that prayer at the end, oh, forsake me not utterly. Lord, don't give up on me. Lord, until this work is complete, Lord, please hold on. Please keep going. I know I'm stubborn at times. I know I fail often. But Lord, don't forsake me. And of course, we have that wonderful promise that he that has begun a good work in us will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ, until that day that we're raptured and we're taken from this world to be in his presence, where not only will we be delivered from the penalty of sin, which was accomplished at Calvary, we will be also delivered from the very presence of sin itself. OK, so that's just the first eight verses, of course. It's 176 verses in the psalm, but I just want to just give you some, some comments from some of the people that have gone through this. Spurgeon said, it's an utterance of spiritual life. He's saying that this is a, a summary of the life of a believer. This whole psalm is a summary of our lives, the ups and the downs, 
one of the things I love about this psalm is that it is so honest. It doesn't try and mask over things and do that. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. No, we, we all do that, don't we? We try not to do it, but and I'm encouraging us as a congregation. If somebody says, how are you? Be honest. Tell them how you are. Because that's the way we grow. That's the way we can encourage and help each other. But Spurgeon says it's an utterance of spiritual life. Now, as I said, it begins by stating the objective and goals we've just seen of a follower of Jesus to be conformed to his likeness, but goes on to travel with us through life's journeys, the ups, the downs, and those moments of rejoicing and the times of failure and doubt. But it comes from a heart that wants to see you be victorious, to truly walk by faith and not by sight. The reason I believe this is in scripture is because it gives us a roadmap. It gives us a path that we can follow and tread also. It kind of it is here to help you walk the walk. Again, not just giving you well-worn cliches, which we are so good at doing, but you know, kind of patting you on the back and off you go. You know, it's not like that. It's a companion. It's to hold your hand. I see the the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit all over this. The Holy Spirit, we're told, is the Paracletus. That's one of the Greek words to describe him, who comes alongside us, who holds our hand on this journey. And in the sense that this psalm is that breath of God, the spirit of God with us on this journey. Now, of course, Jesus said that the Christian life should be a joyful experience. You know, the burden of following Jesus shouldn't be a heavy one. But for many of us, we do experience burdens. We find that life is heavy. heavy. It's a drain sometimes. It's tough. But that's when we are looking down at the waves. That's when we're looking around us as I've quoted a number of times of Oswald Chambers' comment. He says, you know, the, as Peter looks down at the waves, as he walks out on the Sea of Galilee, as Jesus bids him to come, that the waves were actually boisterous. The winds were actually strong. You know, that was the reality. But it's by getting your eyes on Jesus that you don't notice those things. And that's, of course, the challenge. That's the, the call to each one of us, as we were singing a short while ago, to get our eyes on him, to step out, to come to a place where our faith doesn't have those borders, where we just trust God completely. In the way that Job made that statement, yet though he slay me, will I trust him? I mean, that's an incredible statement, you know, that we trust God, even if God takes everything away, including our life. God is good and does good, a line from this psalm. Yeah, many of us, though, do identify more with that Romans 7 situation. You know, we want to live the life, but doing it, it does seem to be another thing. Now, every psalm, of course, in the book of Psalms, 150 of them, this song book of Israel, it is special. But Psalm 119 does stand out, and not just because it's the longest of all the psalms, and considered, of course, the longest chapter of the Bible, but it is like this priceless gem just waiting to be picked up and cherished. Uh, you know, and it's not laborious. There are some uh, expressions that repeat, and yet it's not repetitive. It is alive. It's full of vitality, just as all the word of God is. Now, interestingly, this psalm was intended to be memorized and used as an aid to learning. You know, we have a typical rhyme to learn our alphabet, you know, A, B, C, D, E, and so on. You know, so that's how we learn our alphabet. But for Hebrew children, they would learn this psalm. The psalm, I'm sure some of you are already familiar, is split into these blocks of eight verses. Now, the first block of eight verses begin with the Hebrew letter Aleph. It's equivalent to A in our alphabet. The next eight verses all begin with the same letter, uh, the letter Bet. Uh, and of course, that's where we get the phrase Alpha Bet. It comes from the Hebrew, Aleph Bet, Alphabet. That's where it comes from. 
So God has intentionally designed this psalm to be committed to memory. And in history, there are many Bible uh, commentators, scholars and believers that have done just that. They've committed it to memory. Matthew Henry, again, a Bible commentator that probably many of you will be familiar with, said that his dad, Philip Henry, advised us to take a verse of this psalm every morning to meditate upon. And so go over the psalm twice in the year. And that, said he, will bring you to be in love with all the rest of the scriptures. He often said, all grace grows as love to the word of God grows. Good advice indeed. Spurgeon again uh, made this comment in his uh, Treasury of David, his commentary on the Psalms, that William Wilberforce, again most of us will be familiar with, uh, during a season of turmoil and political crisis, noted in 1819 in his diary, walked from Hyde Park Corner, repeating the 119th Psalm in great comfort. Yeah, and that's what this psalm will do. It will cause us to be in a place of comfort, regardless of what's going on. Wilberforce sang. He was uh, in a, a time of, or as um, Spurgeon comments, he was a time of uh, turmoil and political crisis. And yet this psalm brings a comfort that is not natural. You know, it's that peace of God that passes understanding. Now, there is, in a sense, a familiarity about this psalm. It's like you've been here before. And I kind of like picture it. It's a little bit like an armchair. You know, you've got a favorite chair in your house that you like to go and sit in. You know, you invite friend, uh, family or friends around and somebody sits in that chair. And there's that awkward moment where you think, can I ask them to move? And of course you don't normally. But, you know, we all have that place in our homes that we like to sit. Typically, that's our chair. This psalm is a little bit like that. It's a place where we can just be ourselves. And that's the beauty of this. It doesn't call us to be something we're not or pretend to be something we're not. It accepts us as we are. And as we grow, and as we learn, we'll find an expression for every phase, every part of our lives. And just really get things in perspective. Now, there's a couple of verses I just want to pull out. Uh, verse 25, it just says this. My soul cleaves unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. Now, I love this because it's so honest. It's not trying to pretend that everything's wonderful. It's saying, you know, my soul is actually joined to the dust of the earth. Now, that word cleaving, you may recognize, of course, it's the idea we have back in Genesis um, that Adam um, or, or he said that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And speaking of the relationship that Adam and Eve initially and in every marriage or ever since that time. But the idea of cleaving has, has, is a twofold thing. It has the idea of breaking apart, but also joining together. It's a separation from um, the, the worldly, in a sense, and joining together uh, in union, in marriage. But here, the psalmist says that my soul is literally joined together, as, in, as if in marriage, to the earth. I'm united to the earth. And it's an expression saying, I don't like this. I don't want to be joined to the earth. And then, of course, that expression, quicken thou me, or make me alive. How? Well, the only way possible, according to thy word. The word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and the written word of God, one and the same. That we are only to be made alive through the word of God. And that's the only way that we can be separated from the things of this world. Just want to take you through the prayers that are prayed in this psalm because it's really interesting and this can be a great template for us in our own prayer life. You know, when we pray, there's nothing better than making scripture the basis for our prayers. So I'll go through some of them. I'll read through quite quickly, but there'll be, I'll put the slides up. 
uh, online and things and make them available. But it says, oh, forsake me not utterly. I mean, I'm sure there's been times that we've thought that God is going to give up on us. And why wouldn't he? I mean, if it was us, we'd give up on us. But God doesn't, of course. But the psalmist says, forsake me not utterly. Don't we wander from thy commandments? Teach me thy statutes. A number of times that occurs. Deal bountifully with thy servant. Open my eyes. Hide not thy commandments from me. Remove from me reproach and contempt. Quicken me according to your word. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. You know, presupposes that we have a natural disadvantage when it comes to understanding the spiritual. It's pleading with God to help us to understand these things. And then strengthen thou me according unto thy word and remove from me the way of lying. And we go on. Grant me thy law graciously. Interesting, I'll come back to this later, but notice we have law and grace, both joined together there. You know, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus came to complete the law. Uh, Put me not to shame, says the psalmist, and teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. Give me understanding, make me to go in the path of thy commandments. Lord, steer me in your way, in the path of thy commandments, because there's a way that seems right to a man, but the ways the end thereof is the ways of death. And so the prayer here is, Lord, steer my path in your commandments. Incline, bend, literally, you know, it's not just a, you know, move towards, it's literally bending, as if you're trying to bend a, a, an iron rod or something. You know, do you remember Solomon uh, says, that which is crooked cannot be straightened? Well, that's true, in the natural but do you remember what we read in the New Testament? Matthew tells us, of Jesus, that the one greater, or Jesus himself says, that one greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus can actually bend, straighten up that which was bent, and bend his back. And that's the prayer here. To Lord, incline my heart unto thy testimonies. Turn my eyes from beholding vanity. Oh, we all do that, don't we? We all look at things that don't profit us, don't help us, you know, in all sorts of ways and situations. Establish thy word unto thy servant. Turn away my reproach. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Let thy mercies come also unto me. Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. Remember the word unto thy servant. You know, that verse has really been a powerful one to me over recent months. Lord, remember the word unto thy servant. Do you get the context here? The psalmist is saying, God, Remember what you said. Don't forget, I'm going to hold you, Lord God, accountable to your word. You've spoken these things. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're a God whose scripture tells us does not lie. Lord, I'm reminding you of what you've told me. The verse goes on and says, this is my hope and my affliction, my comfort in my affliction. Yeah, Remember, Lord, what you've said to me. And it's a great prayer to pray. So often we find people in scripture using scripture, using things that God has said, and kind of throwing it back on him. Remember you said you were going to do that. Many times my children remind me, if I've made them a promise, I'm going to take them out or do something with them. Daddy, you know you said you were going to do this, and they just remind me of it. And of course, I'm obligated as their father to do what I said I'm going to do, and I want to do it for them. Well, God is just the same, but it's a great prayer to pray. Be merciful unto me, teach me thy statutes again, repeated. Uh, Teach me good judgment and knowledge. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort. Again, let thy tender mercies come unto me that I may live. Not that uh, I may just 
be alive that I may really, truly live. Jesus spoke of living life in abundance. And that's the prayer. Not just, I don't want to just exist, Lord. I want to have that abundant life that Jesus spoke of. Let the proud be ashamed. Do you think you can pray those things? You know, sometimes we, we think as Christians we should only pray nice prayers. But actually we find in Scripture a number of times prayers being made that God would bring judgment and justice. Let those that fear thee turn unto me. Again, there's a prayer there that we would be an example to others and that we can encourage others. Let my heart be sound in thy statues and I'd be not ashamed. When will thou come for me? Do you know you can pray that prayer? Lord, when are you going to do something? Lord, I'm waiting for you. I want you to act. Lord, I'm praying, I'm pleading with you. When are you going to do it? How many other days of thy servant? When will thou execute judgment on them that persecute me? You know, we, we find a prayer like that in Revelation chapter 6. The souls under the altar. They ask God the same thing. Lord, when are you going to deal with those that have slain us? Those that have acted unjustly, unrighteously and killed your servants? They persecute me wrongfully. Help thou me. Quicken me after thy loving kindness. I am thine. Save me. Notice again the, the context there. Not just Lord save me, but Lord, I belong to you. I am yours. We've been told in the New Testament, Paul tells us in Corinthians, that we have been bought at a price. We belong to God. And we're told to honor God in our body and our spirit, which are the Lord's. But the point is that we belong to him. And there's just a reminder, Lord, I'm yours. You know, I'm your property. I'm your problem. Lord, you deal with the situation to save me. I'm afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord. That's a prayer many of us can pray often. Accept, I beseech thee, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. I like that. It's kind of saying, Lord, accept the things that I say when I fall over myself in prayer, when I stumble, when I don't really know what to say. Lord, please accept those free will offerings. You know, look at the heart from which it comes, not the, the clumsy way that I say things sometimes. Uphold me according unto thy word. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. You know, there is no other rock that can sustain, support and strengthen us. Be surety for thy servant for good. You know, the idea of surety is giving aid or support to somebody. You know, if somebody's in need, they came to you and you supported them. That's giving surety. Now we're told in scripture, don't give surety to a stranger. Don't do that to somebody who you don't know. But the request is, Lord, I want you to provide for me, to give me that which I don't have, but I need. And Lord, because of your generosity, because of your graciousness, I know you'll do it. And don't let the proud oppress me. Deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. And I love this one, verse 126. It's time for thee, Lord, to work. Do you know you can pray that prayer too? Lord, I've had enough. I want you to do something in this situation. Lord, it is time for you to work. Now, sometimes that may be the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your heart. The Holy Spirit will prompt you to pray, Lord, now do something. Now is the time. Let's pray for revival in this land. We need it. And let's pray, Lord, bring it now. We need it now. Of course, the Lord will answer it in his time. But there's nothing wrong with praying that prayer. Look thou upon me, be merciful unto me, order my steps, and let me let not iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man, make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Give me understanding and I shall live. I cried with my whole heart. You know, at the beginning, the opening verse, verse 2, speaks about loving the Lord with your whole heart. And there's a blessing that comes from that. Well, now he's saying, I've cried with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. 
I cried unto thee. Lots of crying in this psalm, by the way. It's so real. It's just where we are. I cried unto thee, save me, and I shall keep thy testimonies. Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness. Don't hear my voice, Lord, because I've got anything great or done anything wonderful, Lord. The only reason for hearing me is according to your loving kindness. O oh Lord, quicken me again that prayer to make me alive according to thy judgment. And then consider my affliction and deliver me. Plead my cause, deliver me, quicken me according to thy word. There's an intensity that builds through the psalm, by the way, as we go through it. Quicken me according to thy judgments. Do you see that in those verses, even the ones with just those first three on the screen there? You get that idea of this really pleading, crying out to God. Even as we grow in grace, we recognize our predicament more and more. And then consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. And then, Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. Another prayer where, Lord, I have trusted you. I've walked with you. I've served you. So, Lord, don't forget me. Don't abandon me now. And it's what I've done my commandments. And it's, again, that we're kind of reminding God as if we need to remind him that the Lord has, the Lord has made promises to us. And we hold God accountable to those promises. Let my cry come near before thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according to thy word. Let my supplication come before thee. Deliver me according to thy word. Let thine hand help me, for I have chosen thy precepts. I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord. Let my soul live, and it shall praise thee. Let thy judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant. That's the closing verse. After this journey, right at the end, as there's been this incredible transformation in the psalmist's life. And as you read through it, you'll see that. You see, finally at the end, there's still that acknowledgement, Lord, I've gone astray. And Lord, I recognize that only you can lead me and guide me and help me become that which you created me to be. And is that prayer, Lord, as a shepherd would seek a sheep, as Jesus says he's the good shepherd, and that he would go after the one, leaving the 99 to go and save that one. That's that prayer that we can each pray. So just some of the prayers that we see here. I just want to share with you just a couple of other little things here. So my eyes fail for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness. Now that's verse 123. But I was digging into this and looking through the commentary. Something wonderful came out. I just wanted to share it. This verse is actually made up. Although there's many words in English here, there's just five words in the Hebrew. And the words are an, uh, which means I, or natural. Okay, so It has to do with natural vision or just generally the natural. Kela, which means to be complete or to be at an end. Yeshua, which of course is the proper name for Jesus. We have the, the Latinized version of the Greek um, but the real name, the Hebrew name is Yeshua. And of course, it means the Lord is salvation uh, again. And then finally, Imra, uh, which means word, uh, which is specifically in the context here, the word of God. And lastly, Serik, uh, which is righteousness. OK, so those are the five Hebrew words. And of course, the translators have done a great job uh, and it's helpful. My eyes fail for thy salvation, for the word of thy righteousness. Nothing wrong with the translation. But, you know, we could paraphrase that looking at the Hebrew words as the natural comes to an end when we look at Yeshua, the word of God, our righteousness. What a lovely idea that, again, through all of the trials of situations, through everything we see this psalmist go through and we go through in our own lives, the natural, that which we really struggle with, that comes to an end when we look at Yeshua. 
It's a lovely thing. And of course, he is the word of God. He is our righteousness. Now, it's interesting. Uh, as we go through this psalm, you'll find that there are a number of synonyms for God's revelation. We have the word law that is in the, the psalm many times. We have testimonies, which again speak of God's revelation. The word precepts we've seen already. The word statutes, commandments, judgments, word, and of course, way. The way. You know, the psalm starts with blessed are the undefiled in the way. So these are all the synonyms. Now, no surprise here. We've actually got seven specific words that are used speaking of God's revelation. Way I've added on at the end there. I'll explain that later. Um, but there's seven specific words, law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments and words. Seven words that are used to express God's revelation to us. Just want to give you the uh, idea behind these words, because it's really helpful as you read through the psalm. Now, in the Hebrew, the word law is actually Torah. I'm very familiar with that, of course. Uh, and it comes from a verb meaning to direct or to guide. That's exactly what Torah means. And it's principally what the law does. It directs us and leads us. It gives us instruction for our protection and safety to keep us from danger. The word testimonies. The Hebrew word is idah. And it means to bear witness. And it speaks of the things that God has testified of and has borne witness to as being true. You see, God is God is outside of time, as bears witness as to the right way. God knows the end from the beginning. God can look at every path that we may choose to tread, and God can tell us whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether it's the right way or the wrong way. God can testify to these things because he's borne witness to it. So because he can see the end from the beginning, he sees the end of every way we choose and where it will lead, so it gives us the benefit of his wisdom. The word precepts is this word picard, uh, and it comes from a word which means to place in trust. I quite like this. You know, God has given us his truth and expects us to respect it. God has entrusted us with heavenly wisdom and has given us this life-giving knowledge. He's entrusted it. We are custodians of this. And again, the Hebrew word only occurs in this psalm. It doesn't occur anywhere else uh, in the Old Testament. But interestingly, and I'm going to come back to this in a while, when I was studying through, I just was curious, because I saw it a number of times. I thought, how many times does this occur? I found that it occurred 21 times. Now, to most people, they probably wouldn't think much of that. But when you start to recognize and realize that there are patterns and design all the way through Scripture, you realize that there are no, nothing by there by accident. Now, 21 is significant. Of course, it's the product of three times seven. Now, numerically, three speaks of divine and seven denotes complete. All the time in the scripture, we find threes. There's the idea of divine associated with sevens. We have the idea of complete associated with it. So in this psalm, we have complete divine wisdom given to you and I that we are to act as custodians of just want to pause. I'm going to come back to this in a while. Uh, I was just reading uh, this morning, actually, and just uh, I thought I'd share this. Uh, the ancient rabbis and sages used four basic modes of hermeneutics. That's simply a way of understanding what a Bible passage means. Uh, and they have this kind of particular uh, acronym that they use. Um, the first letter of that is uh, letter P, and it just says uh, Peshat, and it just simply means simple. So when you look at a passage of scripture, 
the basic way to understand it is by taking it in its ordinary, simple, easy to understand context. That's the, the first one. The next one is a remes. Uh, and it's the idea is there's a, a hint of something deeper than you see on the surface. Now, typically, when we speak of our models and our types that we find in scripture, that's what we're referring to. Uh, then there's drash or midrash, and that's typically a, a sermon or an exposition on a particular part. That's one of the ways it was understood. But the last one was interesting. It's sowed or secret. Uh, this is another way that the rabbis would look at a passage of scripture. And they'd look beyond the surface, beyond just a text, and they'd look for a mystical or a hidden meaning, often arrived at by considering the numerical values of the Hebrew letters. And this is nothing, uh, sorry, noting unusual spellings, considering the transposing of letters and seeing connections between similar words and numbers and the like. So it's typically it is a Jewish way or a rabbinical way of looking at the text. Now, we don't tend to do that in the English. Of course, in the Hebrew, every letter has a numerical value associated with it. So it becomes a, a field of study in its own right. But I just thought it was interesting that this word itself, which speaks of God's word being entrusted to us, uh, is, it actually occurs in Psalm 21 times. Now, statutes, this word is chok uh, in the Hebrew, uh, and it's a verb um, that is formed from, means to engrave or inscribe. And this is exactly what God does. It means a definite, prescribed, written law. Spurgeon makes this comment. He says, the moral law of God, which is engraven on the fleshly tables of the heart, an innermost and spiritual apprehension of his will. That's the idea. And it's interesting because we find a number of times uh, we have here uh, that God's statutes uh, are that which the psalmist says, teach me, inscribe these things upon my heart. You know, if something is engraven, it's not going to rub off. You know, you can have something painted on that can rub off over time uh, or whatever. But if something's actually inscribed, you know, you may have had a piece of jewellery or something and you have something inscribed on it. You know, it's not going to fade away. And that's what the prayer is here. You know, uh, again, teach me thy statutes. It just repeats and repeats. About nine times we find that expression, teach me thy statutes. Eight of those times is specifically God's statutes that are being alluded to, that which is to be engraven on our hearts. And eight, symbolically, it always speaks of new beginnings, uh, which again, I just think is interesting. You know, and it's specifically that that the psalmist is crying out for. The word commandments, another one of these seven expressions of God's word, it comes from a verb meaning to command or ordain. No surprise there. Uh, but God has not only written his law in our hearts, he's actually commanded us to keep it. And this is so important. It's not just suggestions as we said already. You know, the creator God does not sit passively by and let us fumble through life making up our own rules. He's given us definite instructions that we are obligated as his creation to obey. And to refuse to obey is sin. And it stems from pride, choosing our own way over his, as we obviously see tragically demonstrated back in the Garden of Eden. And then the word judgments, the Hebrew word mishpat, here is signifying to govern, to judge, or to determine. So God, as judge of all, has decreed his subjects are duty-bound, but not compelled to follow. God doesn't force us, but of course there is this uh, desire from God's perspective that we follow his judgments. His judgments are right and they're true. One of the statements in the psalm says exactly that, that I've learned that thy judgments are true. There is nothing unjust or tyrannical about God's judgments. And they all stem from that heart of love. 
The last one is word. Now, word's interesting. It comes from this word debar, uh, which connotated or in a general sense embraces all of God's revelation to man. We speak of the word of God. And it's given for our learning and instruction that the man of God may be perfect and complete, because lacking nothing. But denotatively, you know, it has to do specifically with the utterances that come from God's mouth. The word of God spoken by God. And when it is used in this psalm, the context indicates the way that it's being used. It either reveals a God who has uh, condescended to speak to his creation. Or sorry, either way it does that. Now, I mentioned that the word way, I tagged on the end of this. Um, but the word denotes a specific path that we're encouraged and invited to follow. It's a road well trodden. And it highlights that which Proverbs 20, uh, 16.25 tells us that we've quoted already, that there's a way that seems right to man, but at the end thereof are the ways of death. And it underlines that there is a way, a singular way, not a multitude of various options. There's only one way to God through the death and the shed blood of his son. Jesus, of course, said that he was the way not a way. All of these words, I'm sure you can already see, they have a, a direct connection to Jesus Christ. Now, shed a little bit about biblical numerology, uh, but I just want to just take you through, uh, just in closing, just a few ideas here, because uh, most of us are familiar, we've seen these things, that numbers are used consistently in the Bible, and almost all occasions they're given, they, they have an application beyond just the surface text. Uh, and again, we, we see it all the way through, um, the numbers of the frequency that words occur, for example, or the ways that words are used in a particular verse or passage. Now, the number one always seems to have this idea of unity. Of course, we see you know, the nature of God in that, that there is one God. The number two, again, we draw straight from the word of God, is the idea of witness. Uh, there was two witnesses that were required for something to be uh, agreed, ratified, and so on. You know, we have the law and the prophets. Those two witnesses that God has given for all mankind. The third is uh, divine. Uh, and of course we see with the Trinity, you know, holy, 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 and so on. The three, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Four always seems to apply to this earth, the world. You know, we've got four cardinal points of the compass, north, south, west, and east. We have four seasons. You know, straight away you start to realize actually four does speak very much of the world and the earth. Five is used consistently in reference to grace. Uh, we thought of uh, the, you know, the sparrows uh, that are mentioned by Jesus, uh, Benjamin's uh, portion was uh, five times greater than his brother when Joseph uh, meets him in Egypt. So a lot of these times, grace, uh, we find the five porches in uh, John chapter, uh, I think it's John chapter four and five. And uh, six, of course, is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. You're familiar, of course, with Antichrist, his number being six, six, six. Uh, seven, as we said already, means complete. We have lots of examples of that. Uh, the week, the our week is made up of seven days. The rainbow made up of seven colours in the natural spectrum. There's seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three and so on. So that idea very uh, commonly used and throughout Revelation, lots of sevens occur. Uh, in fact, in John's Gospel, there's seven I am statements and so on. So these ideas. Uh, number eight is uh, new beginnings. Uh, the new octave or uh, piano. On the musical scale, the eighth note is the beginning of the new octave. Um, there was eight people on the ark that started new life, as it were, on earth, uh, and many of those other ideas. The word, the name Jesus in Greek adds up to 888, 
Um, so lots of ideas that, that are consistent. Now, just as a, an aside here, the opening verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, in the Hebrew, we have seven words. Seven, as we said, means complete. It's a complete statement. It sums up everything. In that statement, we have the beginning of time, space and matter, which is you know, our reality is made up of that. There's actually 28 Hebrew letters. 28, of course, is four multiplied by seven. The earth, number four, seven, complete. That statement, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's nothing added to that. Of course, God creates within that, but that is complete in the earth. So you get the idea. Now, purely out of curiosity, as I said, uh, I decided to count the number of times the word occurs in precepts. And I found, to my surprise and delight, that it occurred 21 times. And as I said already, that's three times seven, three speaks of divine, seven speaks of complete. So it became kind of immediately apparent that with God's precepts, as we said already, we've got complete divine wisdom entrusted to you and me. But that kind of got me thinking because... I started my counting in English uh, in the King James, which I typically use for study. Um, and I thought, well, really, I need to look at the Hebrew because we read, read the translation. So I wanted to see how many times it actually occurs in the Hebrew. And I found once again, it occurs exactly 21 times. The, the translators were writing the way they translated it. But that got me wondering, what about some of the other words that are used for God's revelation? So I next turned to the word statutes which is another one of these seven, again complete, seven words that are used for the revelation of God. And so seven occurs, believe it or not, 21 times. Now, is that just coincidence that these two words both occur 21 times in this psalm? So that really kind of just again touched me. And it could be, as I said, coincidence, but the rabbis say that coincidence is not a kosher word. So I began to wonder. Looking at the divine design, you know, there's something more here uh, than I initially seen. So I then looked at the word judgments, that word mishpat, and guess what? I found that it occurs 23 times. So I was like, oh, well, I was kind of expecting 21. So I was kind of a little bit disappointed, but I'm not going to try and shoehorn this in. But then I thought, you know, let's look at this a little bit more deeply. So I went through every single one of the times this word occurs. And I found that on two occasions, in verse 84 and verse 132, the word is used to speak of judgment as in terms of wrath or punishment rather than a decree from God, as in God's judgments. OK, so God's decrees that he's passed. And I found that obviously if you take the two occurrences where he's speaking of wrath away, you're left with 21 times again. I'm not trying to make this fit. It's just this what it is. So these 21 occasions where uh, this psalm specifically refers to God's divine decrees. So by now, three of the seven words used in this psalm are synonyms for the word of God. Each occurred 21 times. So straight away, I'm thinking, well, there's design here. This isn't random uh, you know, chance or whatever else. So then I looked at the word commandments in the Hebrew. And the word again is mitzvah. And it occurs 21 times again. So specifically in the context of this personal obligation to God's ordinances. So for precepts, statutes, judgments and commandments, they all occur 21 times each in this psalm. Again, divine complete is the idea here. <clears throat> 21 multiplied by, th uh, sorry, sorry, 21 is 3 multiplied by 7, as I said. So the psalm that speaks of God's word gives us complete divine revelation of all that we need to walk in the way. But there's more than this. 
I carry on digging. Uh, I found that the Hebrew word Eda uh, is the word that's used for testimonies, occurs 14 times. Now, that may not immediately jump out at you. You may be thinking, well, I was hoping for 21 again. But straight away, it really struck me because this is significant. Eda means witness. Now, if you remember earlier, we said that the number two is the number of witness and seven denotes complete. So it seems to be an intentional use of the recurrence of these words in this psalm. So we have God's complete witness also given to us in his word. That leaves us with just two of the seven synonyms left, which is law and word. When we come to law, it's the word Torah, as we've said already. And it's the name, of course, given to the first five books of Moses, first five books of the Bible. It occurs 25 times in the Hebrew. Why is that significant? Well, that struck me because 25, of course, is a product of five squared or five times five. Five is basically, or sorry, is biblically used to denote grace, as we've said already, or fullness, completeness in regards to man. It's God's grace. So what connection then does grace have to do with the law? Aren't they kind of the antithesis of each other? Well, not at all, because actually Torah comes from that word, as we said earlier, meaning to direct, to direct or to guide. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3.24 that it was the law that was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So the law also confines all under sin. It shows that we're sinful, that we need a saviour. It directs and guides us and shows us that we need Jesus. Is that not grace squared? This law that God has given to lead us to Jesus. Is there a greater expression of grace than that? And of course, Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. What does the Lord do? It shows us our weakness. In this verse in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, we have effectively grace and law joined together. Grace, the strength of God, and then law, the weakness of man, all being joined together. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, it, as I said, it's what the Lord does. It's by his grace that God shows us our weakness through his law that we might be saved. Okay, so that just leaves the word, word, okay, as it's translated uh, in this psalm. And in doing so, I discovered something quite interesting here, because in Psalm 119, there are actually two Hebrew words that the English translators have rendered as word. The first is the word debar, which I mentioned a while ago. Now, that occurs 24 times. The other word is imra, which is found 18 times. Now, straight away, this jumped out at me. Maybe it's just me, but maybe some of you have seen this already. But the first there, 24, is a product of three times eight. Three, as we've already said, is divine. We'll come to this in a second. Uh, the second is, of course, uh, 18, which is the product of three times six. Now think about the word. When we speak of the word, who do we think of? We think of Jesus, do we not? Of course, it's a synonym for Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So as I said, the number three represents divine. Number eight, as we've seen, carries the idea of new beginnings. Again, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And the writer to the Hebrew says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Okay, so this idea of new and so on associated with number eight. But Jesus, of course, is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Our new beginning can only be found in the living word. How do we connect all this? 
Well, as I said a little while ago, 888-38 is the numerical value of Jesus' name in the Greek. Okay, so Jesus is also God manifest in the flesh. So the three is a divine taking on the form of man. So we have three and eight, and we have three and six. We have the God element, the, the Son of God and the Son of Man, in these two words that are translated as word. So every single one of the seven synonyms for the word of God found in Psalm 119 occurs exactly the right number of times to convey an even deeper and greater truth and reveal a divine design that can only be of God. Again, it's what the Hebrews referred to as a remez, as I said earlier. Now, that was one other word that I was curious about, uh, which is the Hebrew word uh, derek, which is the word we have translated as way. I was just curious because the Psalms kind of built on that uh, idea right from the first few verses, uh, as we said. Now, I found that it occurs eight times in the Psalm in the context of God's ways as opposed to my ways or the world's ways. Now, significantly, Christians in the book of Acts were known as the way. Before we were called Christians, it was simply spoken of as the way. In fact, eight times in the book of Acts, we find that expression used of the church. Uh, in that way. So the word way signifies, sorry, the number eight signifies new beginnings. And the word eight, sorry, the word way occurs eight times in this psalm. Could there be a more fitting conclusion than the reminder that the new beginning is for those who walk in the way? So all of these revelations, just to put them up again, law occurs 25 times, speaking of grace squared effectively. Testimonies, meaning witness, seven times two, 14 times the complete witness. Precepts, uh, again, divine, complete, 21 times, as his statutes, as his commandments, and as his judgments. And then we come, of course, to word, which, as I've said, the uh, first of the words uh, is 21 times, actually, in the English, uh, we find that, which is interesting itself. But when we look in the Greek, we find that it's 24 times it's tra translated Debar, 18 times Imra. Speaks of, again, the Son of God, the Son of Man, uh, the Word of God made flesh. And then Way is translated eight times, uh, as, or, or eight times in the Hebrew, apologies. Again, speaking of new beginnings. To summarize all of that, well, I'll put it this way God, through His grace, has borne witness and given a complete revelation of all we need to walk in the way. The word became flesh so that we can have a new beginning. Now, just an interesting little exercise you can try. Of course, Jesus is the way. So we can put the name of Jesus in each of the verses in place of the word way as follows. And it's interesting. Blessed are the undefiled in Jesus. They also do no iniquity. They walk in Jesus. I have rejoiced in Jesus as much as in all riches. Make me to understand Jesus. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. I have chosen Jesus who is truth. I will run with Jesus, keeping thy commandments. Teach me, O Lord, of Jesus, and I shall keep him unto the end. Turn away my eyes from the holy vanity and quicken me in Jesus. It really expounds what we would see in the surface text as you start to realize that all of these expressions point to Jesus. And you can try this with the other words as well, and that's quite a fascinating exercise. Now, just to end, as a personal challenge, I want to encourage you to take just one verse of this psalm each day. Start today, okay? Um, and meditate on it through the day. 
Now, actually, we're told in Psalm 119 itself that seven times a day the psalmist meditated on God's word. So we can start at breakfast time. Just read a verse uh, when you get up in the morning when you're having your breakfast. Just one verse. It'll take you seconds to read it. But then remind yourself of it mid-morning of the verse. So if you have a coffee break mid-morning or something happens, mid-morning, just remind yourself of it. Again, at lunchtime, just go over the verse. And then in the afternoon, maybe afternoon tea break, whatever, and then as you sit down, as you're getting ready for your evening meal, just read it again. It just takes seconds. Then in the evening, and then finally, the last thing you do before you shut your eyes at night, read that verse again. And just try doing that each day. It'll just take you a few moments of time, but it will give you an incredible spiritual reward. Okay, this is Psalm 119, verse 164 is where, again, the psalmist says seven times a day, uh, I will praise you. So, again, start that. The first day you do it, the next day, just move on to the next verse and gradually work through this psalm. So really just encourage you to do that. Again, you will be amazed at what the Holy Spirit will show you about your life, your walk, his goodness, his grace, his patience with us, and the reality that he's able to make us stand. If you do it and meditate on his word each day, even just one verse, you'll soon be surprised how the things of this world as we have in that great hymn, will grow strangely dim and lose their appeal in the light of his glory and grace. May God bless you. Let's just close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation to mankind that has given us everything we need, that it is complete, that you have borne witness of the right path for us to follow. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to trust you, to set our eyes upon you, to get our eyes off the worthless worthless things of this world and to, Lord, just follow after you, to get our eyes upon the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, as we go into this year, Lord, we pray that our journey would not be on our own, that it would be with you, that, Lord, you would indeed be a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths to lead us home, we pray. We just thank you for these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.